Good morning. It was only 30 seconds, apparently. Meet and greet. Apparently, I turned you off, or else you saw that the time I was up here, and so you all settled down real nice and easy. You, you can keep freely greeting one another for 60 seconds. We got it worked in. You can do that for next time. Every scar has a story. I have a bunch of scars, and they're all in my head, mostly. First one was when I was three years old. I stood up on the piano bench, and uh, uh, my mom tells me I fell over into the into the steam radiator with the big fins, you know, and I cut my head open. That was two, three stitches. And there was another time that uh, I guess I was in the house a little too long. My mom says, "Why don't you two play outside?" Me and my buddy were inside. Why don't you go play outside now? And I, maybe I would, didn't listen or didn't run outside too quickly, so. My sister decided she'd give me a hand and help me out, so she took me by the scruff of the neck and pulled me backwards, and I fell into the banister at the bottom of the stairway and another two, three stitches. And there was another time, I was about in fifth grade, they were out playing, the, uh, playing up on the football field in the end zone, way far from everybody, me and two other guys, two other friends of mine, and we were, we were all in good fun, it was rough housing it, and one of them you know, got on his hands and knees behind me. I didn't know it. Another friend came up and shoved me, and I fell over backwards. Right over his head. We were laughing all the time until my head hit a rock. Who'd think a rock would be in a football field? But it was, and it split my head open. That was about five or six stitches, and that one's right here. But it wasn't all a loss, because when I went running to the nurse's office, there was blood streaming down my neck, down my head, soaking into my shirt, and all the girls saw me. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> Every scar has a story. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the story of creation and how it was scarred. We saw the perfection of God's creation and what went wrong when sin entered in and how God dealt with man when he shamefully disappointed his God and his creator. Dave last week uh, exhorted us by saying, when you blow it, own it. Don't hide it. You know, don't, don't try to cover it up. Don't shift the blame. Admit it. Easier said than done, right? But yeah, behind that stands this point. That God is ready to restore a relationship with you and to bring you hope and healing just as he did Adam and Eve. Now some of you may be thinking, when you think about Adam and Eve, restore a relationship with Adam and Eve, I thought he kicked them out of the garden. <laughs> and he did, but I want you to think with me for a minute. That instead of cursing man, as he, God cursed the serpent and cursed the ground, God punishes man and immediately begins to extend to man grace and mercy and hope. Man sinned, but God was already doing his part to restore that relationship with Adam and all mankind. God, his grace, restores. See, scars don't mark you as imperfect. They mark you as healed. And all of us need healing. No matter where we are, we can move one step closer to healing with him. And that has been my prayer this week, that someone here 
would hear the word of grace, hear the word of God, hear the word of truth and respond to it from their heart knowing God forgives them and God can restore them because he loves you and he seeks to restore a relationship with you just as he did with Adam and Eve. Now wounds, they come in all shapes and sizes. Some need three stitches, some need five stitches. But some of us carry wounds from childhood. A wound occurs when a, when a parent dies just at the age of 12. Right when you need a parent the most. A wound occurs when you're rejected. Some of you know that firsthand. Because your spouse has walked out on you to pursue another. Or to pursue something. And you're left. Rejected. Some say it's worse than death. And some of you know. Sometimes wounds come because we um, had done something that we shouldn't have done. Sometimes wounds come if it's no fault of your own. But one thing is for sure, we've all been wounded. But here's another sure thing. God wants to bring healing. He wants that wound to scar over so that one day you can speak a story and tell of God's mercy and grace in your life that he might receive the glory in that story. And so this morning, we want to consider the healing grace that God brought at the very beginning in the garden. And, and we're going to see how God initiated that healing from the start. And how today God can take all of the wounds that are represented here among us, among you and me, and bring healing and to scour it over with a story for his glory. So I want you to take that white Bible that's near you and uh, turn to page 3. On page 3 you'll find Genesis 3, verses 21 to 24. That's what we're going to be reading this morning, Genesis 3, 21 to 24. <clears throat> and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east side of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. How is it that we can be healed? And the answer is very simple. It's because of God. We see three things about God in this passage where he initiates the healing right from the beginning. Number one, God is gracious. God is gracious. He initiates a cover-up. Now, when I say cover-up, not the cover-up of likes of which we've heard in, the, in politics these days, but something that covered them up. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments and skin, of skins and clothed them. 
Now, God is gracious to these two that deserve death. Remember, God said, the day that you eat, you will surely what? Die. But instead of killing them, instead of them dying there on the spot, he initiates a cover-up, literally. Now, when you go to a hotel and you have a pool, as my wife and I like to do, she more than me, but she likes to go to the pool and, and, and go swimming when we were able to, and then it says in the, in, the, in the rule book that you can't walk through the lobby with your bathing suit on, and the pool's always on the other side of the lobby from your room, so what do you do? You get a cover-up. You cover it up. God is gracious. He becomes the world's first clothing designer of cover-ups. Actually, that's what we see here. Fig leaves were never a long-term solution. Adam and Eve tried, but it just they were temporary at best. You know what fig leaves do. You know, they fall apart. Fig leaves, they itch a little bit. They, it's hard to find the right size. And, and it's every day or two, you've got to find, you got to get a new outfit for, for fig leaves. Now, that's a little bit humorous, but here's a serious point. Man's puny attempt to cover his sin always is doomed to failure. Your sin will find you out. And to try to cover it, try to hide it, it's, it's impossible. And God knows it. And that's where he steps in. God takes the initiative to meet the need for Adam and for Eve. Without waiting to be asked, he provides some nice leather outfits made of animal skins for the two of them. By the way, on verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3, soon as they sinned, Moses, Moses who wrote Genesis changes his references to God. Up until that point, he refers to God as Elohim, the creator, the eternal one, Elohim. After verse 8, after they sinned, his reference to God is Yahweh Elohim. That is the gracious, the merciful creator, eternal one. So immediately he changes his references. He begins to refer to God as the gracious and merciful creator and eternal one. So here God acts in grace and mercy and compassion toward these sinful, shameful people. And he clothed them. And he covered them and their shame and, shame and their guilt. It was God who did it. I want you to see that. God did it. Now think about this. In the normal course of events, in order for an animal to have a skin of an animal, what happens to the animal? It's got to die. Now you may very well have an animal alive around your neck if you did. I mean, my aunt used to have a fox fur. Aunt Mabel, she would wear this fox fur every Sunday afternoon she came to visit at our house. But it wasn't live, it was dead. It looked live. You looked at the head of the thing, I thought, oh my gosh, look at that. But it was dead. That's when women used to wear fox furs. But if it was live, she couldn't keep that on her shoulders, and neither could you. And the fox wouldn't like it very much either. So the point is, the animal had to die. Which means that God had to put it to death. And that death, which is implied in the text, it's not actually stated, but it's implied, death involves suffering and sacrifice and blood. And this is the first foreshadowing of the biblical truth of atonement. Substitutionary atonement. 
that that animal had to die instead of the man to cover up and atone for his sin. And God did it. From sacrificing the lamb and applying the blood to the doorpost, the lintels of the, of the Jewish homes so that the angel of death would pass over and would not take the firstborn of that household, to, to the laws of Leviticus where there was killing of animals left and right and blood and killing and lots of it, the message is clear. God must be approached by way of sacrifice because your sin is too great for you to dare to approach God on your own. Which starts as a little hint of chapter 3, verse 21. A little hint now comes full flower when we come to the gospel of the New Testament and the cross of Jesus Christ. He was the perfect, sinless sacrifice who died for you and for me. Who died in place of us when we should have died. He took our place. God is gracious and he initiates the cover-up, to restore this once broken relationship. Now, Adam and Eve didn't understand all that. They didn't see all that. But on this side of the cross, we look back and we can see what God has done through Jesus Christ our Lord, which started as a little kernel of truth in Genesis 3, 21. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something? I couldn't wait to tell you this week. Number two, God is gracious and God is just. He takes sin seriously. We can be healed because God is gracious and he initiates atonement. But also God is just. He takes sin seriously. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God is just, and he judges sin. And that's why they're evicted. That's why they are uh, driven out. They are ejected from the Garden, which is a very strong word in the Hebrew, by the way. But the reason that they were driven out was not just because of punishment, but it was also for their own good. Driving them out was an act of mercy on God's part. God is merciful. He's gracious, he's just with sin, but he's merciful. He's provided a way. Let me explain that. See, by sinning, Adam and Eve, they know full well what evil is all about. They know sin like a cancer patient knows cancer. And so, so now God must cast them out. And he really has no, has no choice in the matter. If they, if they stay in Eden and they were to eat of that tree of life, they would live forever in their sin, in a fallen state. They would live forever. So by evicting them from the garden, God made sure that they would not eat from that tree of life in their fallen state. And as an act of, as an act of mercy, he sends them out. And he starts in motion. The story of redemption for the ages, right there. God provided another way. Verse 24, he drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He would not allow man to return to eat of that tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. An act of mercy on God's part. And Eden as a place disappears after Genesis chapter 3. Uh, no one ever goes there again. It vanishes from the face of this earth, uh, apparently destroyed with Noah and the great flood. But what about the tree of life? What happens to it? We're reintroduced to the tree of life in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And I have it on the screen for you. 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Water as clear as crystal, pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing down the middle of the city's main street. And on each side of the river is the tree of life producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. So here you got on either side of the river stands the tree of life. Is it one tree? Is it many trees? I mean, really, who knows? But the tree of life is everywhere. And it bears fruit all the time. And, and its leaves are for the, get that, healing of the nations. Meaning that God intends for vast multitudes of people that they should come to the tree to find hope and to find healing. And what was once a single tree meant just for Adam and Eve to enjoy has now become a heavenly orchard, if you will, of fruit for the ages, for billions of people. God provided another way. Where do you find hope and healing? Only in Jesus, the Lamb of God himself sacrificed for you and for me. Because he is gracious, because he is just, because he is merciful, he provided another way for healing and for a relationship and for salvation. And if today you bring your wounds to Jesus, he can heal them. And some of your wounds might be pretty big because some of them have been festering for a long time. In this community, I would venture to say there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of people who've had an abortion. And even among us, some today, are struggling with the shame and the guilt of that in their past. There are those among us who have been victims of sexual abuse. Do you know in this day, here in America, if you are a young adult, the age is 21, 22, 23, one in three young gals have suffered sexual abuse. And one in three young men have been sexually assaulted. So if you look to the space to your left, you look to the space to your right, there's a very good chance that someone is suffering silently and hiding it away. There are deep wounds in this room. And there's deep healing in Jesus. When you have an open wound, it hurts, right? It's sensitive. Ow. You don't want people to touch it. No. 
You pull away. You hide it. You cover it up. You know what people see it? What, what color are band-aids? Right? You know what people see your, your wound? And that's the way it is spiritually. We have deep wounds, and they hurt, and they're sensitive. So what do we do? We cover them up. We hide it from others. We don't want to tell anyone about it. And what happens when someone touches it? We cringe, right? We pull away. We say, don't touch that. We get away. We respond by saying, leave me alone. Let me ask you, what's the one thing in your relationship that if your friend were to get too close to that issue, that item in your life, that you would definitely pull away? Or it, it could even ruin your relationship. You think to yourself, I, I can't talk about that. I, I don't, I don't want to be vulnerable about that. What is it in your life that you just, you just want to cover it up, hide it away? Because it's too sensitive and, it's, and it's too, it hurts too much. I don't want to go there. Let me tell you something. Covering up is not going to help. It's not going to help. It's temporary. What happens when you let infections go too long? Right? If you let them go too long, they could kill you. Left untreated. Maybe that's why when a couple has been married for 10, 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden their marriage blows up. Might it be because of something that was never dealt with when one of them was 18 years of age? And when it finally gets close enough and it gets tested, it gets touched, someone triggers it, it just blows up. For it to heal, you've got to uncover it. You've got to bring it out into the open. You've got to let some air get to it. You need to get some treatment. And you need to find healing. So it will scar over. You know, there's nothing that cannot be healed by Jesus. He's gracious, he's just, he's merciful, but he's also reaching out and he's touching you this morning, is he not? So the question is, will you open your heart to him? Will you receive his healing? Will you stop covering up that part and uncover that place in your life this morning so that God can touch you? And heal you. There's a Japanese art form called Kansuke. I should ask K.O. what the actual name is. I think Kansuke, Kansuke. They take pottery when it's been broken, and instead of throwing it away, they take the pieces. If it's a plate or a bowl, um, they find a lacquer and they take gold dust and they begin to mix it in with the lacquer. And then they use that lacquer with the gold dust to piece it back together again. In the actual places where it was broken is where your eyes are drawn, isn't it? It's the place that glows. It's the place that shines. That's an interesting way of thinking about the healing we find in Jesus. If you're broken, What's the world going to do? The world's going to throw you away. The world's going to discard you. You're useless. But Jesus is the one who takes not only 
want to heal you. But he actually wants to take that place where you've been healed and make that the most glorious part about you. See, that becomes the very place where we can see his glory shine. The light shine in your life. That very place where you were broken. Linda Donahue tells a story of healing that she found in her life through Jesus Christ and his word. What was once broken is now the reason that she has to give him the glory. I want you to listen to Linda. So if you would have asked me my biggest fear three years ago, I would have said that something would happen to me and my children would be left without a mother. So about two and a half years ago, I went to the doctors because it was, I felt a lump on my breast and I got a mammogram and I got an examination and I heard the doctor say things like, this looks suspicious, this is something that, um, you know, we may need to take further look at. And I remember thinking, oh, th this, is, this is probably nothing. And I left there and, and I came home and I thought, wow, this, this, is, this is a little scary. This is something that, that could end up being um, something that, you know, is, is fearful for me. But I didn't think about it. So then I went to another doctor and they did, um, they did a biopsy. And it was, it was very scary. And she said she believed this was probably breast cancer. And then I went home and the next day I got the call confirming, saying, the doctor saying you have breast cancer. And all I could think about was I, the fear and death. And I fell to my knees and I cried. And I asked God, I said, God, I, I, this can't be. I have a husband. I have four kids. I have a seven-year-old. I have a daughter who's 17. She's going to turn 18 next month. She's going to graduate. I have a big graduation party. This can't happen. I have four kids. And I remember pleading with him and asking him, just please take this away. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want this to be in my life. And I have all these things going on. And I have these four kids. I have this seven-year-old. And I kept going back to, I have a seven-year-old. I can't die. And the next couple weeks, it was going to doctors and going to um, oncologists and um, different doctors to get different consults. And it was very scary. And all I could think about was, was just asking God, I, I, I can't go through surgeries, I can't go through three surgeries, I, I can't go through chemotherapy, my hair is going to come out. All these things that I was faced with that were coming at me just every day. It was very overwhelming. And all I could do was sit with God. That was the only place that I found peace. I would come home and I would sit in the same spot every day, sometimes for hours. Sometimes it would take hours for me just to sit there and hear everything he had to say to me. And I'd wake up in the morning and I would have, <clears throat> I would have, um, you know, a fear that I, I might have had that day or a specific concern. And he would take me in the Bible. He would take me through his word and he would show me exactly what I needed to see, what I needed to hear from him. And so I, right before the surgery, I remember talking with the breast surgeon and she was saying, explaining to me what would happen, what I would look like when I came out of surgery. And all I could think about was, these scars. I was going to have these scars that I was going to have now for the rest of my life. And every time I looked at them, it would remind me of fear. I was dreading them. I was dreading looking at myself. And every day I would bring this to God and every day I'd bring this before him and I would just tell him exactly what I was feeling. 
So one day, I remember sitting with God. This is, I was in the middle of getting chemotherapy. I remember sitting with God, and he took me to Philippians 4, 6, a verse that I've known that I've known, you know, was hanging in my refrigerator, um, you know, be anxious for nothing but pray about everything, which I do, pray about everything. Usually I'm anxious about everything, so I pray about everything. And so I kept saying, oh, I, I get, I know this first God, I, I got this one. But there was something else in that verse that I, I, I guess I was reading over, and that was thankful. And I'm thinking, pray and prayer and and anxiety and thankful it, it just didn't it didn't kind of fit with me and within the next couple of days he showed me and I saw things differently I began to see things differently I began to look at everything that happened to me and give him thanks for that so bilateral mastectomy a word I never ever wanted to hear I became thankful for that I became thankful that the doctors knew how to remove all of the cancer from my body and do a reconstruction, put me back together and make me look normal again. Chemotherapy, this was something that could give me a further reassurance that the cancer would never come back. And these things that I once saw as fearful and as something I, I didn't want to hear and I didn't want to talk about and think about, now I became thankful for them and I was thanking God for everything that, that he had given me for this journey, this journey that I had never wanted to go on, had never wanted to start. I was thanking him for it. And see, what he did is he transformed me. He was a transformation in me that I no longer had these fears. I no longer had this dread. And now what my scars are all about for me is strength and hope and his promises. And the confidence that I know that when I put my prayers out there to him, he will answer them. Something that started so ugly and so fearful ended up being so beautiful. Linda's testimony reminds us that when you allow God to heal you, your scar is your story for his glory. Your scar is your story, all for his glory. Sometimes our response to our wounds is to hide them. Don't anybody see them. Keep them covered over. But if you've been healed, you can tell the story. You need to tell the story. The story is the most glorious part. Just like that bowl or that piece of pottery, it becomes even more valuable in God's hands. And that's what it is to be healed by Jesus. We all have wounds. All of us do. But when a wound is healed, what does it do? It turns into what? A scar. Now think about how different a scar is from a wound. A wound hurts. A wound is sensitive. A wound you want to cover it over, but a scar. A scar is a story. It's a story of what God has done, or it can be, when you allow him to heal you and bring you to a relationship with him and restoration with him and salvation with him. God can do that. Because I want to tell you about it. Scars tell a story because they don't hurt anymore. Your scar 
is your story for his glory. You got a scar? You need to tell it. You have a wound? Then will you be bold enough today to take God at his word that he is gracious and merciful and will pour it out to you this morning if you will cry out to him. Let's pray this morning. Pray with me. Oh Lord, there are those here today that are suffering wounds that are so deep and so long-lasting that they wonder what life is, would be without them. And maybe they've even carried them from childhood, Father. Lord, I pray that you would start a kernel of truth in their heart today through the Word. Because of what you did for Adam and Eve and what you've done for all mankind, Father, that will become a seedbed for them to find hope and healing in you. And that they'll be bold enough and brave enough, Lord, to come to you today, as Linda did, and just seek your face and seek your word. Please hear the cry of each one of our hearts this morning to find the strength to confess and our pain and our woundedness. We've carried them too long, Lord, and they've weighed us down. We want to uncover them before you this morning to find healing and hope and peace. Father, we know a scar doesn't make us imperfect. It makes us healed so that we can have a story to tell about you. In your name we pray. Amen.